I want to encourage you to open your Bible to 2 Samuel chapter 6. We're going to read our passage um, in its entirety this time before we jump into a specific story rather than jumping around as we have been so far. And I want, as Jeremy mentioned, to speak to you about the heart of worship and uh, to consider it through the lens of uh, pride and humility. And uh, so I want to read you this particular account of David bringing the ark into Jerusalem. Now, let me just set a little of the scene here. We're entering the story not long after David's been coronated as king. So he was anointed many, many years earlier as a boy, really, when Samuel came to his father's house and he was brought in and he was anointed with a flask of oil. And then he, after serving Saul briefly and ending up on the run from Saul, um, spends a considerable amount of time um, being hounded and pursued by Saul. And I suppose in that time, a lot of growing up takes place in his life. And God, no doubt, was using the suffering that he went through to prepare him for the particular task and call that God had, had summoned him to fulfill with his life. And Saul dies. End of First uh, Samuel, you'll see that King Saul dies. And shortly after this, David is officially coronated as the king over the entire nation. And this is where we're jumping in. After these years of this time that's, that's, that's elapsed of him waiting to become king, the first acts that he fulfills as king are very important. What are they? Well, the first one is that he conquers Jerusalem. It's weird to think of a time when Jerusalem wasn't part of Israel, but it's, it's so synonymous with David, and it's known as the city of David. He conquers Jerusalem. And then his very next act is to reclaim the Ark of the Covenant. And to bring it into Jerusalem so that it can take its rightful place among God's people again. The Philistines had taken it from them. And David, I suppose signaling his intent for his leadership, reclaims it, brings it back, puts it in its rightful place at the heart of the nation. So let's read the story. Um, the, the, The ark has already moved halfway on its journey so far. If you've ever read this story, you'll know what happened Uzzah, one of the stewards helping to carry it, put his arm out to steady it as it was, as it was rocking on its, on its poles and was about to fall onto the, the road, and he dies instantly, having made contact with this, this sacred object. God kills him. And so David says, let's just take a pause. Let's take a breather. He allows the ark to stay in the house of a man named Obed-Edom, And uh, some time elapses, and then David decides, okay, now we're going to make the rest of the journey. So we'll pick up from 2 Samuel 6, verse 12. It says, It was told King David, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David, to Jerusalem, with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. So every six steps, a sacrifice is taking place on the journey from Obed-Edom's house into Jerusalem. We don't know how far that was or how, how, how many animals died in the making of this movie, but there was um, a considerable amount of bloodshed on the journey. 
Verse 14, and David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. And as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, so Michal is um, David's wife and also Saul's daughter. Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat and a cake of raisins to eat each one to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his house. And David returned to bless his household. But Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel has honored himself today, uncovering himself. Uh, sorry, let me try this again. How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michal, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you've spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. All of this is a very important moment in David's life. I just want to, to look at this through the lens of what the Ark symbolized for a moment. The Ark of the Covenant was exceptionally important as an object in Israel's history and in their story. Why is that? Well, it's because it was designated as the place where they, as God's covenant people, could meet with God in relationship to him. So in Exodus 25, for example, we learn about it that God said that you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. And there I will meet with you and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I'll speak with you about all that I'll give you in commandment for the people of Israel. So it was the place where formally and officially, you know, God could speak through the prophets and so on, but formally and officially God's people would encounter him in that in the, in the place, in, in the vicinity of this box. And it was an incredibly important object for them symbolically. Within it, it contained three things. I don't know if you know what they are. They were the, the tablets of stone upon which the Ten Commandments had been written uh, when Moses went up the mountain. Aaron's staff, the very staff that was hurled down and became a snake, uh, and uh, which Aaron used, the staff that budded, that Aaron was used when he delivered, helped with Moses deliver the people from Egypt, and a, a jar and urn containing manna that was miraculously preserved, I suppose, um, the manna that they'd eaten in the wilderness. And so all these objects were kept within the Ark of the Covenant, and therefore it had a deep symbolism. It was symbolic of their covenant relationship with God, in the same way that a wedding ring or even an engagement ring is symbolic. 
shall we say, I'm sorry, I, I don't mean to wind you up, Alex. I don't have this thing. I hope this thing has, uh, has reappeared. But as, in a way that a ring can be symbolic of a relationship, in the way that a uniform or a flag is symbolic of a soldier's loyalty, in the, in the way that um, there, there are that kings and scepters have uh, kings have scepters and crowns that symbolize their um, their relationship to a people, so also the people of God had the Ark of the Covenant. Now, ask yourself then, why is David so intent on bringing this thing back to, into Jerusalem as one of the first acts of his reign? And the answer has to do with his desire to signal his intent as king to place God at the center of their nation's life. In the book of Deuteronomy, long before any kings were anointed or coronated, before they had a king, God warned them and said that when you do have a king, he said that the king must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And what God is saying this, he's saying that when you have a king, the king's tendency, as all rulers in all the world demonstrate, will be to accumulate benefits and power and symbols of his, of his authority to himself um, for the, the purpose of, a, of self-aggrandizement. And therefore, the king who is meant to lead you into God's presence will really only be interested in, in his own power and authority. The very thing that we saw with King Saul and that we later see with Absalom when he, he has the chariots, he has the horses. And God warns them, this is what the king must not do. And then God tells them that when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests and so on. And he's meant to read it all the days of his life to learn the fear of God. So what God was saying was that he was meant to take the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, and the king's job was to copy them out by hand as one of the first things that he does in his rule and reign in order that he would possess the word of God in his mind and in his heart and have his own copy to read and to study all the days of his life so that God would be on the throne of his heart. Now, are you tracking with me? Can you see why then it was so vital that David, in one of the first acts of his reign, brings the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem? That having now been positioned as a steward between heaven and earth, a king with the responsibility of sustaining and maintaining the people of God and their covenant relationship with God and leading them in righteousness and holiness, what he's effectively doing is he's saying, God is king. God is king. God will rule. This is not about me. It's as though David, in our story, is a little bit like Frodo receiving the ring of power. I'm sorry. And as he hovers, do you remember how the story goes? He's hovering over Mount Doom, and he's, he's feeling the hesitancy. Should he keep the ring to himself, or should he throw it into the fire in order for it to be destroyed? And with all it, 
it, it, it allowed its, its user to have the power and the authority that it gave to its user. And David, upon becoming king, has that kind of a decision to make. And instead of holding it to himself, he, he ushers God into the center of their life as a nation. And we need to understand all that by way of context. It's beginning of a reformation or a revival. Now, the journey itself is a scene that captures David's heart, perhaps more than any other scene in his story, because it shows us his worshipping heart. And that's the way in which I want us to understand this. And we're going to think about what is worship, and then we're going to think about the lens of pride and the lens of humility as ways of understanding what's going on in this, this, this passage. What is worship? How does this story teach us about true worship? I think that this story and what is going on here, in a sense, is symbolic of all true worship. It's symbolic of what happens when you and I gather before God together as God's people. The things that are taking place here are a visual representation of our moments and our times together of worship. So what is happening here? And I want to give you my answer in two ways. I want to say that there's something being offered and there's something being received. Now, let's understand then what's happening here. Here's what's being offered. Look at verse 12. It says that David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with, with, with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. He is offering an abundance of sacrifices. You know, I mentioned it earlier, but when I, was, when I was young, I don't really notice it these days, but at the end of any movie that featured animals, there was always that line, do you remember this? That no animals were harmed in the making of this movie. Because obviously none of us want, um, want, want animals to die unnecessarily. It's fine if they become burgers, but if they're just dying to make a movie, we feel a sense of the, 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 the wrongness of the situation. And so, you know, obviously the, the film studios felt that they had to offer this disclaimer at the end of every movie. And yet here there's something very interesting because the law did not command that, that David had, that anyone had to slaughter animals as they moved the Ark of the, the Covenant around. It wasn't, it wasn't a commandment. There's something very unnecessary, something very gratuitous about the number of animals being killed and slaughtered on this day. Why is he doing it? Of course, part of it, it seems to me, is just the obvious fact that that this is one of the ways in which they, they express devotion to God. But I think there's more going on than that. I mentioned to you what had happened just prior to this, um, within, within the, the memory of this moment, was the fact that their first effort to move it to Jerusalem has resulted in a death. That Uzzah had put out his hand to steady the ark, you know, well-intentioned, but lacking the fear of God. And as he put out his hand, he was struck by God and died instantly on the spot. And David was very upset about this situation. And it seems to me, therefore, that when, as David now commences the second leg of this journey, he and the people with him have sort of decided to, to go about things in a different way. Their mindset has changed. Gone is the casual approach that had marked their previous attempt and that had resulted in a death. And now instead, there is an intensity 
and a fear of God that has entered into their heart so that they feel that they must make these sacrifices every six steps. That in a sense, there is a propitiatory action going on, a kind of sacrifice of atonement. They are laying out the pathway in blood so that God will not look upon them with anger, but will cover their sin even as they're going. And it seems to me, friends, that this is a beautiful way of understanding what happens when we worship. When you and I come into the presence of God, it's not that we offer fresh blood. We bring a sacrifice of praise. That's what the book of Hebrews says. But we bring our sacrifice of praise on the understanding that Christ's final sacrifice makes our worship acceptable. We no longer shed blood, but we bring our praise through the atoning blood of Jesus who ushers us into the presence of God. And so there is a sacrificial dynamic to this, that they are offering themselves to God. But for us, our eyes are fixed upon the final sacrifice. And that's not all that's being offered. Do you notice the other thing that's being offered is this joy? This celebration. This heart. David dances, it says, with all his might. The language of him dancing actually is literally whirling. He's spinning and spinning and spinning and spinning with this kind of frantic movement that just celebrates joyfully what's going on. He's dancing with all his might. Why? I think because God hates hollow worship. He hates hollow worship. Do you remember how Jesus quotes the book of Isaiah in in Matthew 15 when he when he's criticizing the Pharisees for all their traditionalism. And he says, he quotes Isaiah that says, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So they have all the right words, but they lack the passion. They lack the love. They lack the heart that is really the substance and the authenticating mark of genuine worship and devotion to God. It seems to me that this cannot be overlooked. I know as well as you do that love is loving God is not just about emotion. It is more than emotion. Jesus said that if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Love is obedience according to Christ. And, uh, you know, even in, in, in 1 Samuel, one of the ways in which Samuel spoke to Saul, he said that, behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of ram. So God doesn't just want display of obedience. And he's not just interested in emotion. He wants you to obey him. That's the first thing in your devotion of love. But friends, if your obedience to God is lacking love, if it is merely duty, then it seems to me that it falls short of the biblical pattern of devotion to God, of of worship to him. Remember how Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 13 and the centrality of love in the Christian life. What does he say there? Listen to these words. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers 
and understand all mysteries and all knowledge. And if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. He's describing here worship and sacrifice for God. And he's saying that if you worship God and make sacrifices for him and to him, but it is, devo- is void of the substance of love, then your worship is hollow and empty. And therefore, when you see this vision of a man who is so devoted to God that he cannot help but burst into a moment of exuberant praise and dancing and vigorous movement, you're seeing beneath the tradition and the dutiful elements here. Yes, they're doing the right things. They're making the sacrifices, but there's more than that. There's David's heart, his irrepressible love for Jesus or for for the Father, I should say. Doesn't yet know Christ, of course. In worship, we offer something to God. Most importantly, our love. But there's also an exchange that takes place in worship because we receive something from him. What do they receive here? Well, they receive, first of all, the presence of God. They receive his presence. The Ark of the Covenant symbolized, actually more than symbolized, it was where God's presence was manifest and concentrated among them. Now, I remember some years ago when I used to lead worship, in our old church, um, I, I began, it was actually a conference that we were holding. I began a time of worship and I, I opened, as we often do, and I prayed on the microphone. And I prayed, God, um, would, you, would you presence yourself among us as we worship? Words to that effect. And uh, as I got down from having led worship after the, 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 the service had ended, a man came up to me and he said, I, I noticed that you prayed that God would be present with us when we worship. And I said, yes, that's right. He said, well, don't you know that the Bible says that God is present everywhere? And I think it's inappropriate, therefore, to pray that he be present with us. Don't you agree? To which I, you know, I didn't quite know what to say in the moment, to be quite frank, Um, because In my understanding of Scripture, even for us as New Testament believers, we know that we have access to God through faith, that we are, in a sense, approaching the heavenly uh, Zion every time uh, we we, we come to God in worship. But nevertheless, we pursue Him. Hear this verse in Psalm uh, 105, verse 4. It says, Seek the Lord and His strength. Seek His presence continually. James chapter 4 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Now, of course, in one sense, it doesn't mean that God is is in one place any more than he's in another because God is absolutely everywhere. I'll give that to my good friend. But on the other hand, the way that God manifests his presence varies from place to place and time to time according to his will and sovereign will, but also according to the receptivity and the devotion and the hunger of the worshiper. How else can you make sense of all those moments in Scripture when people encounter God? And even those moments in the New Testament when the Holy Spirit is poured out in fire and power upon God's people. So when we worship, we bring something to God, our sacrifices through Christ and the devotion of our hearts, but we also receive something. We receive the presence of God among us, 
And more than that, because this is what God's presence symbolizes, his rule in our hearts. This is clear when you think about what the linen ephod was. I, as a kid, I, I think I misunderstood this. I don't know if I heard this mistaught or what it was that led me to understand this. I thought that David's clothes had fallen off and he was just wearing his underwear. Like imagine if we had a, a, a raving worship service this evening and we're all just end up in our tighty whities like that kind of a situation. That's what I thought was going on. I don't know how I came to that misunderstanding because that's not what actually was going on here. The linen ephod was the priestly garment. David has taken off his royal robes in order to wear the garment of a priest. In order to communicate that God is king. And that he is merely God's steward, ushering the presence and the rule of God into Jerusalem for the benefit of God's people. Can you see that? Doesn't it give us a new lens through which to understand what's going on in this passage? He's divesting himself of his kingly robes in order to receive the true king for himself and for God's people. And so, friends, when you put all this together, worship is offering our sacrifices and our love to God, but it's receiving something. It's receiving his presence and his rule, which means that it is so much more than just singing. When you come into a time of worship on your own or with God's people, A mighty exchange is taking place in which you are offering yourself to God and in which you are receiving his rule and reign in your heart afresh. You're crying out, you're drawing near to him and saying, God, presence yourself with and near me and rule in my heart, rule in my heart. You, you could do worse than to Imagine this very scene every time you come to church, every time you gather with God's people. To recall the heart and attitude of David, to picture the ark being brought into Jerusalem and imagine that God's very rule is entering into your heart as you come before him in a fresh expression of devotion. Isn't that a beautiful way to see and understand what's going on here? Now, I want to now just... just continue this our understanding of this and we're going to just think about this through the lens of pride and through the lens of humility firstly how does pride collide with true worship and this is where we have to meet Michal Michal at this point in the story at least is one of these people who's quite easy to dislike she has become sour she's sarcastic and she's quite snobby as well Having been raised, I suppose, as the daughter of a king, she has certain sensibilities about what is and is not appropriate behavior. And this, let's listen to what happens here. It's verse 16, first of all. It says that as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. You can kind of picture her face, can't you? Peering out the window with displeasure and anger and hatred. And later on in verse 20, she addresses him. She says, how the king of Israel 
honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. It's dripping with sarcasm and scorn and mockery and hatred of her own husband. Now, I want to ask with you, how is pride expressed here? And I'll just show you a few facets to this. One is that it is expressed as shame and embarrassment. Shame and embarrassment. When I was around probably eight or nine years old, I don't know if you've ever felt shame or embarrassment in the presence of a family member. When I was eight or nine years old, my mum took me to the, uh, the fruit and veg market in Winchester. Where, we, where I grew up, and we, we arrived at the market, and uh, one of the fruit sellers was shouting, two pound a pound, strawberries, two pound a pound. And of course, it was an offer you couldn't turn, out, turn up. It was, you know, this is a lot of strawberries for a pound. So my wife, uh, not my wife, my mother, <laughs> my mother, Freudian says, <laughs> my mum joined the queue, excitedly with great anticipation and we queued and she made her purchase she exchanged her pound coin which in those days was worth like 500 quid or something I don't know <laughs> she exchanged her pound coin for these these punnets of strawberries it was an extraordinary deal and we walked away eagerly anticipating eating the strawberries and she opened the brown bag and looked inside and discovered to her dismay that they were they were moldy and rotten and the guy obviously had done this on purpose. He was just trying to get rid of his stock and, you know, he tricked us. So what did my mum do? She, you know, she's not one to suffer injustice <laughs> lightly. This will cost her a pound after all. And uh, so we rejoined the queue. And we patiently went back to the, the front of the queue. And as she, we met the man, she confronted the man. She said, those strawberries you sold to me, they're moldy and rotten. And he said, I'm sorry, love. I'm sorry, love. What can I do? Sold a scene. Sold a scene, love. <laughs> and uh, he refused to give my mom her money back. Now, I was already wilting at this stage. I was an easily embarrassed child. I'm still fairly easily embarrassed. I can blush at the drop of a hat. And, even, and then it was even worse. And things began to escalate because at that point she took one of the boxes that the fruit seller has and put it on the ground and stood on it, turned around and addressed the whole queue of people waiting for their deal. These, this fruit is rotten. This man is a cheat. Don't buy his strawberries. It was one of the most embarrassing moments of my life. So I've, I haven't really gotten over that, to be quite frank. One day you'll find me in a therapy session just explaining all the damage that this wrought to my soul. But anyway, um, Mikhail is feeling the shame because there's her husband acting like a fool. He's wearing the linen ephod. He's spinning and spinning and spinning and spinning. He's worked up a sweat. He just looks utterly ludicrous to her. She'd grown up under the, the dignified King Saul in his house, his daughter. And here's this joke of a king. 
And it seems to me that therefore her shame was to do with his unkingly behavior, but also to do with his uninhibited emotion. Emotion can make any of us feel uncomfortable at times, can't it? And it seems to me that this is true whenever somebody expresses raw, raw worship. It can cause discomfort to those around. It's like a public display of affection, you know. You know when a couple first falls in love and it just makes you feel nauseous, you know. You just want to tell them to, to remove themselves from public vision. And, but they don't care. They don't care because they love each other. They're so engrossed in each other that they don't care how, how much affection is on display, how much love is on display. And it seems to me that something like that's going on here in David's experience of his encounter with God. He doesn't care. He doesn't care because he loves God. And God takes delight in passionate worship. And Michal can't understand it. So, so the shame and embarrassment, but I think that that's then accompanied by another element of her pride here, which is undoubtedly envy. Now, I don't think this is spelled out in the text, but I think you can quite easily understand how that must have occurred in her heart because all of us have experienced this, haven't we? Remember what I said envy is. Envy is sorrow for another person's good. Remember that? And very often... You can experience spiritual envy, which is misery that another person has joy in God that you don't have. You see someone else free and happy in their relationship with God, and you don't feel free or happy. And that can provoke within you a form of pride that is envy. So there's shame, there's envy. And without a doubt, that then gives birth to a third element of her pride here, which is judgment. How do we deal with envy when we see it in the, in the context of worship, in the context of spiritual assessment of each other, when we see people who seem to have what we don't have? How do we deal with it? Very rarely do we look inwards and question what's wrong with us. We don't address the problem in our own hearts. We don't say, well, what's wrong with me? Rather, our knee-jerk reaction is to think, what's wrong with them? You know, what's wrong with them that they, that they think it's appropriate to wear their emotions out on their sleeve like this so freely? And so we dis it's much easier, isn't it, to when you see somebody who seems to have a freedom you don't have and a love you don't have and a passion you don't have, it's much easier to dismiss what they have than to question what you don't have. It's much easier to say what they have is fake or to label it as a form of emotionalism. They're just whipping it up. Or to, to imagine that they're showing off. That's what she says to him here, that he's uncovering himself before the eyes of the servants. He's showing off. And it's easier to therefore judge what's happening in David's heart than it is to question what's lacking in her own. And so, just to wrap this part up, Joyce Baldwin, commentator, she said that Michal despised him for the very qualities that made him great, namely devotion to the Lord and spontaneity in worship. She despised him for what made him so special. Isn't that a tragedy that they let their marriage have become so twisted and broken? 
That's pride. And I just want to ask you, do you identify with that at all? Have you felt those feelings about others, about expressions of worship? Have you felt embarrassment? Have you felt envy? Have you felt judgment towards other believers? This is pride, isn't it, friends? And it's not healthy. It's not good or godly. Now, I want you to think about David finally. Think about his heart, the heart of a humble worshiper. Listen to how he responds to, to Michal in verse 21. Actually, we'll just take this phrase by phrase. The first thing he says to her is, is this. He says, it was before the Lord. Now, the statement that he makes here to Michal, I think in some ways, I think in some ways it captures, it's one of those statements. You think if you want to sum up David, these few lines sum him up. You know, there are, there are lines that, that people have said historically that instantly sum them up. We will fight them on the beaches. You instantly summon up the spirit of Churchill, don't you? you? You feel something of his presence through the words. I have a dream. Suddenly, the, the, the oxygen and the vision of Martin Luther King enters the room. You, you feel something of his presence through his words. Martin Luther, here I stand and I can do no other, so help me God. You feel his resolve, his courage, his, his absolute um, unfading decision to, to repel the, the corruptions of the Catholic Church. The certain sentences just capture people. And it seems to me that what we're about to read, what David says, captures his heart in a way that just, it just beautifully distills what the man is about. And let me show you a few things he says. The first is this. He says, it was before the Lord. It was before the Lord. You can never be humble by focusing upon yourself. And part of humility is beginning to live a selfless life, interested in the concerns of others. But ultimately, humility is being lost in God. And it seems to me that David's ego has been so depleted and destroyed in its most negative sense because he's lost in God. It was before the Lord. Os Guinness memorably wrote this line. He says, we who live before the audience of one can say to the world, I have only one audience. Before you, I have nothing to prove, nothing to gain, nothing to lose. If you want to be free of the opinions of others, learn to cultivate a sense that you're living for only one person's approval, and that is God's. You're living for an audience of one. It was before the Lord, David says. That's his humility. He's lost himself in God. The next thing he says is, it was before the Lord who chose me. Hear those words, who chose me. Above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. I don't think that what he's doing is taking a mocking tone here. I think you could read it that way. But it doesn't seem to fit with the character of David or what we know of him in the very next chapter. In chapter two, at chapter seven, verse eighteen, when he's, you know, God has offered him the covenant, the promise of 
an eternal throne. And he says, who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you've brought me thus far? I don't think David ever lost sight of the fact that he was unworthy. But he also knew that God's choice is God's sovereign choice. As Christians, this is what we've been studying in Ephesians, isn't it? He chose you before the foundation of the world. And when you believe that God chose you, when you you become a thoroughgoing five-point Calvinist, pride has to die because you didn't earn your way in. It was a gift of grace. He chose you. You didn't choose him. You may have thought you pursued him. You may have thought you chose him, but then you look back and you see it a whole different way. God went after you. He so aligned the circumstances of your life and the people with whom you interacted that you came to that point of submission and surrender to God. He called you. He renamed you. He sanctified you and brought you into his kingdom. And a believer who lives constantly with that sense that I was dead and now I'm alive. I had no more chance of of loving God than, than a corpse does of climbing out of its own grave. It was before the Lord who chose me. That's humility, friends, and it's humility bred by the gospel. And I think David just never lost sight of that. If King Saul had been a kind of pure breed, taller than anyone, a head above everybody, just that really, really ridiculously good-looking guy. David was the mongrel and the runt of the family who everyone overlooked, but God had sought him and brought him in. And Jesus has been doing that ever since. That's his kingdom, friends. Look around you. That's us. That's us. He chose you. He called you. He brought you in. Now have freedom in that. It was before the Lord who chose me, and listen to this last line, and I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this. Some translations have more undignified than this. And I'll be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you've spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. I'll become more undignified. I'll make myself more contemptible. You know, I think you've got to understand this against the backdrop of the the striving that so often we have in our hearts to, to be acceptable to others, to be liked, to be admired, to be praised, to belong, to be on the inside, the in crowd. And I think that if that has always been a feature of human nature, it seems to me that that is a dominant feature of our culture to a degree and to an extent that perhaps has never been seen before in history. We have such a vision of what it means to be on the inside, how to wear the labels and the badges of acceptability in terms of your views, your beliefs. You know, it's the pressure that's constantly put on you in your workplaces to conform to a certain way of thinking and acting and feeling about all kinds of social issues, to be on the inside, and nobody wants to be on the outside. To be on the outside is to be an outsider, to be excluded, to be a weirdo and a nobody. And we live with this constant sense of pressure and peer pressure to be an insider. And it, it, it sucks us in, it draws us in, it compels us to a certain degree because we're vulnerable to that desire. 
And it seems to me that it's one of the greatest threats to sincere faith. Because by definition, a Christian is someone who is called out. That's what the word holy means. That's what it means to be sanctified. It's not being different for the sake of being different, but it's being different for the sake of being near to God. And so it seems to me that what characterizes the uniqueness of this man, because he was unique, he was singled out from among all the people in Israel to take on the role of being king. So he was unique. What was unique about him was the degree to which he was free from the burden of needing to please other people and being captive to the, the whims of culture and of fashion and of what is acceptable and of social status and all of these things. They did not matter to David. I'll make myself yet more contemptible, he says, and I'll be abased in your eyes. He's free because he's shunned the approval of man. It doesn't matter. I want to close by reading a couple of verses from the book of Hebrews. It says in Hebrews 13 that Jesus suffered outside the gate, meaning the gates of Jerusalem. He suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his blood, his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. The author to the Hebrews is describing authentic worshippers. They are those who are not too tied to the things of this world. Here we have no lasting city. It doesn't have a hold on you. You can enjoy the things that God supplies and gives you in this life, the position he puts you in, the friends he puts you in, the circles he puts you in, the possessions that you have. You can enjoy them, but you can also do without them because it's not about the here and now. It's about then, the eternal city. Your heart has already left. You have an eternal vision. And so you go and join Jesus outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. You become a worshipper of Christ, which means you turn your back on this world in that sense. We're facing the world in love, but we have our backs towards the world as it pertains to our pride and our need for love and approval from others. Because God is enough. So go to him outside the camp. That's what it means to be a worshipper. You'll see sometimes in buildings that they may provide a blanket as a means of extinguishing fire, a fireproof blanket. 
Because when you throw a fireproof blanket onto the flames, it smothers them. It, 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 it stops the oxygen from, from feeding the fire. And the reality is that pride is a fire blanket to your passion for God. The fear of being different. The fear of being overly passionate. The fear of being regarded as eccentric, as weird. These are the very things that Jesus was labeled with. And his fire was not dimmed because he was humbled before the might of God. Oh, that the Lord would take such smothering away from our hearts, that his spirit would breathe on us with fresh oxygen to ignite the passion, the delight, the desire for him. Do you want that? Yes.